Hi, this is Steve Poor, and you're listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. This week, we welcome Victor Lee. Victor is the assistant managing editor at the ABA Journal. After working as the assistant district attorney at the Bronx County District Attorney's Office, Victor decided to explore a new path, one in journalism. For several years, he was a reporter on various legal industry subjects at the American Lawyer and the Law Technology News, which is now Legal Tech News. He went on to join the ABA Journal as a legal affairs writer. He later took his current position as assistant managing editor, where he oversees the business of law front of book department. That means he covers legal tech, law firms, marketing, wellness, law schools, and innovation, among many other topics related to the profession. Additionally, Victor authored the book, Nixon in New York, How Wall Street Helped Richard Nixon Win the White House, which was published in 2018. In today's conversation, Victor and I discuss how he broke into journalism, writing about Nixon, wellness and mental health in the legal profession, and the stories he'll be focusing on in 2024. Thanks for taking a listen. I'm joined today by Victor Lee, who's an author, editor, lawyer, journalist, a little bit of everything. Victor, thanks for making the time. No, I appreciate it, Stephen. Thanks for having me on the show. You've had a fascinating career, particularly in journalism following the business of law. What got you to go to law school to begin with? You got a chance to go to Tulane, so that in and of itself is enough of a draw, I think. Yeah, uh, see, so yeah, everyone says that because um, and Tulane usually ranks pretty high on the uh, the party school rankings, but I mean. That, that's really more for undergrad, I guess, like the idea that, um, I mean, in law school, I mean, you, you remember, it's, it's so much, so much pressure on you to study all it's the time. A grind. And, yeah. And like, just to, to do that. Um, yeah. I mean, I think one of the things about, I, I've always enjoyed the law. I've always loved reading about it, writing about it, researching it. And just going to law school was just, you know, sort of the next natural progression for me. Like I really wanted to, at that time, be a lawyer, practice law and kind of take my love of law to the next level. Uh, but then, you know, once I kind of started practicing law, it, it, it wasn't what I had, 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 had thought it would be. It wasn't what I'd hoped for. And I found that even though I still liked aspects of the law, particularly, you know, reading about it, writing about it and, you know, doing the research and that kind of stuff, I didn't really like practicing it. And, you know, that's a pretty, <laughs> that's a pretty, that's a pretty expensive lesson to learn about, about yourself at that point. But luckily for me, you know, I was able to switch careers and go into journalism and, and, and do something that, that I wanted to do with myself. You were assistant uh, district attorney in the Bronx for a couple of years. That had to be a tough gig. So I can understand how that might not have been what you visualized. What took you there? Well, after college, I worked as a paralegal full-time at the uh, Manhattan DA's office, and I really liked it there. Ah, uh, okay. You know, I was really, you know, I, I, so I really went to law school with a very narrow focus. Like I wanted to be a prosecutor. I wanted to do what the people that I'd worked with at the Manhattan DA's office, I wanted, I wanted to be like them. I wanted to do that. And that kind of taught me a little bit of a lesson too, because this idea of just kind of really going in for a very narrow purpose, not really letting myself have any additional opportunities or not really pursuing any additional opportunities and just really being hyper-focused on just doing one thing. So then when that one thing didn't turn out the way I had hoped for, then it was just kind of like, oh, what do I do with myself now? And just, you know, being at the Bronx DA's office, yeah, it was it was a very, for me, you know, it, it just kind of felt like I was swimming upstream all the time. Like all the cases just kept coming no matter what. Like I would try a case, win or lose. I would plead plead a case out and there'd be like 20 cases ready to kind of just fill in the void. And it just felt like I was never actually accomplishing anything, especially when I would see the same people over and over again in arraignments. I would see the same names on my desk every, you know, every, every week or so. And it, it just kind of, it just really kind of felt like I wasn't actually doing anything. I wasn't actually 
getting anywhere. And, you know, when you kind of feel like that, you kind of feel like, okay, what's the point of me even doing this? Then it's kind of like, you might as well start looking at something else. Luckily, I was still young. You know, I didn't have a family. I didn't have people that I had to support. It was still early enough in my career. I was able to switch careers. It just wasn't, it just wasn't the right move for me at the time. For other people, it was, it was, it was a great move and, and, and it still, and it still is a great move for, for a lot of people. But just for me, it turns out it wasn't the right move for me. Uh, the advice not to go to law school with such a singular focus is, is a good one because there's so many things you can do uh, with a law degree. I mean, you've, you've made a great career reporting on the business of law in, in, in the journalism side. But there are other things people can do with law degrees as well if the Perry Mason vision doesn't work out for them. Oh, yeah. No, it's, it's a great set of skills to have. I mean, let's talk about Liam Neeson. It's, it's a great set of skills to have. It's a great way of like, because, you know, I mean, look, I, mean, I know people talk about law school and, and they're like, oh, well, they don't teach you to be a lawyer. They just teach you how to think like a lawyer. I was like, but no, but that's, that's important. Those skills are very, very much transferable. Like you can look at things with a certain amount of skepticism. You can look at things with a certain amount of like, okay, well, it doesn't really matter what I think it is. It's matter, it matters what I can prove or matters what I can show. And that's very much transferable to like a, a career in journalism, for instance, because at the end of the day, it's all about storytelling. It's all about you need to find out what happened. You need to figure out what the facts are, and you need to figure out what the story is. And for journalism, you're just, you're just applying it to a different audience. You're not going to a jury. You're not going to the opposite party or whatnot. You're putting the story out for the general public. And the skills are still very transferable. And, and I think you know, they've been very helpful to me as I've tried to be a journalist and whatnot. And I think that you know, those skills I, I, I value very highly, and, and, I'm, and I'm very glad that I had that opportunity to be able to develop that. And, and I, wouldn't have, I wouldn't have been able to do that without law school. Absolutely. Now, you've been reporting on the business of law and legal tech and related issues for, I guess, 14 or 15 years now. <laughs> That's been that long? Wow. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> uh, time flies. Yeah. Trust me. I, trust me. I just went to my eight-year-old grandson's birthday party. <laughs> and, and trust me, time does, in fact, fly. Yeah. Yeah. But you, you didn't start your journalism career, if I've got this right, in reporting on legal, on legal tech. You started reporting on soccer. <laughs> yeah, uh, well, um, that was like, yeah, like more like freelance reporting. But uh, I, I did that was that was my first paid gig in journalism, where I would I would uh, write about mainly European soccer, some Premier League, some Champions League stuff. You know, it was a great way to kind of meld meld. Like my, I was going to watch the games anyway, so I might as well get paid to to report on them, right? <laughs> um, but uh, but luckily, luck, yeah. But then that um, segued into something more more related to like my my background in law. You know, not, not that I mean, obviously. You know, I when I when I went to graduate school for journalism, I wasn't. I, I made sure I didn't make the same mistake that I did for law school, where I was like, okay, I have to do this or I have to do that. If I'm not X, and that means I'm, then that means I didn't accomplish what I wanted to or whatnot. I was much more open to like all kinds of possibilities, whether it be you know national affairs, sports, legal reporting. But obviously, I think just given my background and given the way I just approach things, I think law was always going to be sort of the natural segue for me. Why journalism? What in your background or what sort of latent interest came out that had you choose journalism as a career? I've always loved writing. I mean, it's something that something I do all the time, just even just for fun, not for um, just for my own sake. Uh, I've always enjoyed writing. I've always loved it. And so I wanted to do something that involved writing and obviously then adding in the skills of like that I had from being a prosecutor with uh, investigating things, figuring out what the facts were, uh, interviewing people and trying to find out what their stories are. That just seemed like a very, you know, natural transition for me. No, but also really just what it came down to was just my love of writing. It's always something I've always loved doing, even when I, when I was a kid. And it was something that I just wanted to do. Let's segue a little bit off of your, your journalism career and talk about your role as an author. Sure. Uh, you've written a book on Nixon and the role <laughs> law firms played in his uh, comeback the president 
I'm fascinated. What, what, what was it about that that got you intrigued? Well, I've always been fascinated with Richard Nixon in general. I mean, to me, he's a very, he's a tragic figure in American history. And I mean that like Greek tragedy, not like, oh, what happened was a shame. Right. Because, you know, I mean, you could argue, I mean, I, I, I think it's, it is fair to say that he brought a lot of it on himself. But um, he always interested me just as a, as a political figure, interested me as a person. But what really kind of planted the seed was that when I was working at the American Lawyer, you know, their focus is on AMLAW 100, 100 and 200 firms, the, the big ones, like Safarth for, for one thing. And then... Um, what really kind of got my attention was that I realized it was about to be the 50th anniversary of him joining the firm, Mudge Rose, uh, which became Nixon Mudge. And I thought, okay, well, that might be a cool story to write uh, for the magazine. Just, you know, it's always it's always hard trying to come up with story ideas and whatnot. And I was still very very early in my career where I was just looking for anything to kind of just get in the magazine or get on, on the web or whatnot. And so I wanted to learn more about his time at the law firm, like what it was like, how he used it to generate business, how he used it to help him you know, become president if it, if it did. And, you know, so I actually reached out to the Nixon library and I was like, oh, do you have any books that you can recommend that talk about his time as a lawyer? And they were like, well, there hasn't actually been a book written about his time as a lawyer, but you know, there's some books written by people that touch on the subject a little bit. So you might learn a little bit from that. So then I kind of thought, okay, well, if no one's written that book, then maybe I should write it. And that's kind of what kind of led to that as far as you're just, just, just that seed of interest kind of planted in my head. And I was like, well, I want to learn more about it. And I think it's interesting to me. I don't know if it's going to be interesting to other people, but I think he's, he's, a, he's an interesting enough character in person that it would have some kind of interest with people who are, you know, just want to know more about him. And the more I've learned about it, the more I kind of felt like, okay, I think I can do this. Like, and it was intimidating just trying to put that all together. But when it finally did come together, it was, it was very satisfying. Are there lessons you draw from what you learned about the time with Nixon and his role as a lawyer and the role of the law firm? that are applicable in today's political environment? <laughs> well, <laughs> uh, yeah, and, and that was the other thing, because like, uh, I think while I was writing it, obviously, you know, you know, um, regardless of what people's politics are and what their ideologies are, you know, there have been a lot of comparisons drawn between Richard Nixon and Donald Trump and sort of like their respective rises and whatnot. So it, it, it was interesting writing the book while Donald Trump was ascending to the White House, because you know, I could see some of the parallels, but then also some, some of the, I could also see how some of the comparisons might have been a little bit far-fetched. But I think, you know, really what it just boils down to is just in this day and age, and, and I kind of thought about it, I was like, you know, could someone do what Nixon did today? And I don't know if that's the case. I mean, if you look back at 2008, the lead up to the 2008 election, Rudy Giuliani kind of tried to do that. Like he went to Bracewell. At the time, people were like, that's a weird move for Rudy. He's a New York guy. He's going to this like law firm in Texas, which is not the biggest firm in Texas. I mean, I mean, they're, they're big, but not like, you know, not, not along the lines of like Aiken Gump or one of those firms. And so it was a weird move for him. And people were like, well, there's a guy there who's a big bundler for the Republican Party, a big fundraiser. Um, there's some other people who, you know, some clients and whatnot who are well-heeled and maybe, you know, could provide him with the kind of access that he was looking for. And so then people kind of put, put it together, sort of, like, okay, maybe he's doing what Nixon did in the sense by using the law firm to kind of help him run. But, you know, I think he kind of saw the limits of that too, because then I think he, he kind of ran into a little bit of problems. Like, okay, well, you know, he represented this one company that had ties to the Chavez government. And, oh, what does that mean as a Republican? You know, why are you, why are you getting in bed with these people? Or, you know, so it's very tough to kind of separate that now because, you know, if, if anyone does, I mean, and, and Ted Cruz had the same problem. Like when he was at Morgan Lewis, he, I think he represented a client who had some Chinese business or, or some, some, a lot of contacts in China. And they were like, oh, well, what's the deal with China and Ted Cruz? So in this day and age, you know, it's very difficult to kind of use that platform the same way. Uh, but that doesn't mean it can't be done differently. And ultimately, at the end of the day, you know, the same rules that were there for Nixon are still prevalent, are, are still there today. Like law firms have a lot of young, 
talent, people who graduate at the top of the class, very smart people, people who, you know, if they believe in something, they're going to, they're going to really go all out to try to, to try to make sure it happens. And, you know, it's a good, it's a good place to kind of find talent for, you know, if you do want to kind of, you know, build a staff or build a group of people to help you, help you out. But as far as using it, like, you know, using it as a, as a way to kind of help you advance up the political ladder, I, I don't know if that can still be done today. Oh, fair enough. Let's uh, let's talk about your career as a as a legal affairs journalist. You've worked for the American Lawyer, what's now known as Legal Tech News, and now with the ABA Journal as both a writer as an editor. And you've covered a wide range of topics from legal tech, obviously wellness, mergers, acquisitions. Let's put legal tech off to the side for a moment because I want to come to that separately. But as you look back over the last ten to fifteen years as a as a writer, as a journalist, as an editor. What do you find most interesting about the evolution of the business of law in the areas that you've covered? I mean, and you brought up wellness. I actually think that's a big one because, and, and I'm sure you you remember this, uh, and, and I'm sure it was the case for a lot of people. So for the longest time, wellness was not an issue that lawyers, law firms, law schools, legal companies, that they really cared about, let, let alone even understood. Like it was just kind of suck it up and deal with it. You know, whatever you're going through, just get over it and do your job. You know, and that's not unique to the legal industry. A lot of a lot of companies, a lot of people just had that mentality. Decide this idea of like, well, if something's wrong in your head, just 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 get over it. Right. Just deal with it. Yeah. I mean, I mean, what's wrong with you? Just get over it. We're paying you all this money. So that'll 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 make you happy at the end of the day. So just go go and do what you gotta do. And so this idea that like now you have a much more of an awareness of, you know, mental health, needing mental wellness, dealing with people who might not, you know, have that same type of just suck it up and deal with it kind of mentality. It just, the idea that it would take hold in the legal industry, that was a surprising development for me, just as someone who's watched it uh, from afar, but also, you know, was, was in it for a little bit. Just the, that idea that like people would really even care about how people are feeling or how people are thinking or how people are getting burned out or whatnot. That Because, you know, the idea was always, all right, well, if you can't hack it, we'll get rid of you and find someone who can. And the idea that that's not necessarily the way things are done now. I mean, obviously there still is different firms have different approaches, different companies have different approaches, different industries have different approaches. And some some are willing to put their money where their mouths are and some, you know, are willing are more paying more lip service to it. But just the awareness and plus you have a younger generation now who are making it more of a point to insist on on it. And the pandemic, you know, also helped kind of supercharge a lot of that too. So just watching that unfold has been very fascinating to me, just as someone who has has been watching the legal industry for a while. Yeah, you know, it's interesting you make that point. I've sort of seen it the same way. I've got a few decades on you. But I remember, you know, when I started, you know, the three martini lunch was still in vogue. <laughs> and you had, you had all sorts of, you, know, all, you had all sorts of pressures. And the pressures only ratcheted up as American lawyers started reporting on profits. Hours became more of an issue. So you have a lot of pressure on lawyers to generate business, to put in their hours, to generate stuff. Have you seen, without sort of going into specific firms, have you seen firms effectively deal with, it's one thing to be aware of and support mental health or, or uh, wellness. It's another thing to sort of try to take steps to alleviate some of the pressures leading to those problems. Have you seen any trends in that respect? 
it's funny because when I assign stories like this or when my reporters report on these kind of things or or just just even like talking to people and whatnot, it's funny because like a lot a lot of it is still very much like, you know, well, we have these perks that we can give to associates like, oh, you know, they can they can do this or 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 we have these things at the office that they can use or we have like these timeout spaces for them or we have discounts to, you know, Peloton or some various other things that can help them with it, which which are important. I mean, you know, don't get me wrong. I'm not I'm not poo-pooing that. But as far as like, have I seen like a law firm or or a company or one just being like, okay, well, you know what? If you can't make your hours this year because you know, you were burned out or you had a problem with your family or you had some emotional issues or whatnot, that's okay. We're not gonna hold that against you. I mean, I haven't really seen that, but that's also not something that you know, I, I don't, I don't, I don't know if like law firms are really going to go out and admit that, or you know, really, really kind of trumpet that up. I guess. I mean, what what I have seen is more like kind of incremental steps. Like, you know, some law firms are very good about, okay, well, you know what, if you're happy with the current arrangement of working hybrid or having half your week, you know, at home, or you know, maybe even most of your week at home, then we'll we'll let you keep that. We're not going to enforce return to office policies. I mean, some some firms are enforcing it, but some firms look, you know, are like, well, you know what? It's if it's better for you, it's better for your productivity, it's better for your mental health to be at home and you get your stuff done, then we're not going to insist on you coming back to the office. And so stuff like that, but that but that that's that's still a huge step. I mean, this idea of law firms being okay with people uh, and not all not all law firms obviously, but like even some some firms being okay with people not having to be at the office all the time. That's a big sea change from even where it was pre-pandemic where it was very much built on are you at the office are you there when we need you so that that has been a pretty big change as far as i've seen but i think it's going to be these incremental steps that ultimately you know that that, that we that we have to see that we're going to see for the for the foreseeable future because these kind of generational shifts these kind of big attitude attitude shifts and whatnot they're not going to happen overnight and the legal industry is built on certain things that there's a reason why they're building blocks and the reason why they're resilient and the reason why they've been there for as long as they have. And the idea that we're just going to change things just like that is not, it's just not right. It's just not reasonable. I don't think. Yeah. And you know, it's, you make an interesting point about the role of hybrid working in mental health. There's an ongoing debate as to whether that gives people more of a work-like balance or whether the evolution of technology has made us always on. No. And, uh, it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out, isn't it? Yeah. That, and that's the other thing. It's just like, because obviously with the devices, with the prevalence of smart devices and the internet and whatnot, in theory, you know, working from home really shouldn't necessarily give you that because if you're always on, then if someone needs something at like nine, 10 in the evening, then in theory, you know, you should, you should have access to to all your work and, and, and you could do it if you had to. So yeah, this idea of always being on is you know, a side effect of that. But I mean, I think ultimately at the end of the day, you know, as this next generation kind of becomes more, they become more prevalent in the industry, they, they start to amass more more seniority or they start to involve them much more like big cases, big deals, have more important roles at, at, at law firms and companies and whatnot. If it's a priority for them to be able to say, okay, well, we need to have a certain amount of time where we're not always connected. We need to have a certain amount of time for ourselves, regardless of whether or not we have families or whether or not we have just things that we want to do, then we're going we're gonna to want that. Otherwise, we're going to go work for someone else. And that's really the only way you know, we're going to see like any kind of like major change from that, I think. But, you know, we'll see. <laughs> yeah, I think that's right. You can't leave it as an unstructured. You've got to put some structure around it or else it'll consume you on it. Yeah. I said we put tech off to the side. Let's bring it back to the focus. You've been reporting on one way or another in terms of tech for a long time. And I know all the talk is on generative AI right now. Yeah. But let's, uh, and, and we'll come to that, but let's broaden the lens out. Look back over the last... 10 to 15 years that you've been reporting on this. And 
What lessons should we draw from the evolution of technology into the legal profession? What trend lines have you seen that are most interesting to you? Well, it's interesting, yeah. Like, because uh, um, you had mentioned that you're going to ask that, so I thought about it. Like, so when I first started, at, I guess now it's legal tech news, uh, law technology news back then. The big thing was technology assisted review, predictive coding, whatever you want to call it. That was the big thing. It was like, oh my god, this is going to revolutionize the industry. This is going to change the way work is done. It's going to save so much time for lawyers. It's going to cut their bills, and you know they can pass savings on to their clients and blah blah blah. And it's just all this stuff. It sounds familiar, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's a fascinating technology. It has uh, made an impact, but it hasn't made the kind of, I think, mainstream industry shifting impact that maybe its most fervent proponents thought it would. And part of it was just because, you know, I think ultimately at the end of the day, the legal industry is very cautious by nature. It can be slow to adopt technological innovations and changes. And like we said earlier, you know, there are certain things that are done in the legal industry that have been done for a long time. And I think people just kind of accept that and, and, just, and, and just do it that way. And so, you know, and also... The thing with TAR and, and, and predictive coding and whatnot is it's not the most accessible technology for regular people. I mean, people outside the industry who don't have training in algorithms, you know, training in, you know, coming up with seed sets or representative documents or, or statistics or that kind of stuff. But generative AI, it is, it is very, you know, something that can catch, capture the imagination, something that people can understand. It's very friendly for people who are not necessarily in certain industries. I think you can you can just you can just log into ChatGPT and type in something and then and then get an answer. And so you know, I'm not surprised that that has that has established as a hold on the legal industry that, that it has. It was a little bit surprising, surprising to me to see it adopted so quickly by certain by certain sectors and certain companies and whatnot. Uh, I mean, obviously, it's still in its infancy and, and everything. But I think the real kind of lesson for me, as far as like just as a reporter and as an editor in this industry, is you know, you always have to kind of be wary of whenever this new technology comes out, whenever something comes along, you know, you have to, obviously, you have to report on what's going on. I mean, if, if people are going crazy about it, they're going crazy about it. There's nothing, nothing we can, nothing that could be done about that. But you always have to kind of look at things with a little bit of, with a little bit of skepticism and, and kind of look back at sort of all the other things that were supposed to come along and, and shake things up. The metaverse, you know, wearables, you know, Google Glass. I mean, that was supposed to change everything, you know? Um, oh, Google Glass, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so there's always something that'll come out and, whether or not it actually it actually works or whether it gets the intended audience or whatnot is the question. And and you know, right now generative AI, it has established more of a toehold in the illegal industry than all the other than all those other you now technologies that I've seen. And I guess time will tell whether or not it actually does what people think it will. But just watching lawyers embrace it as much as they have, that's been an eye opener for me because like like a lot of people who have watched lawyers and and, and whatnot regarding technology, I mean the the assumption was always, oh well they're not gonna embrace technology. It's not they're not gonna this isn't something that they're going to really start using until everyone else does it or a judge says it's okay. And so just watching them kind of even just take be proactive and, and, and kind of start integrating it into their practices. I mean, some some big law firms, a lot of companies, that's been surprising to me. And so it'll be interesting to kind of see how that goes forward, especially as the technology gets gets more and more you know, powerful and more and more ubiquitous. Yeah, you know, you, you made an interesting point. I want to follow up on a little bit, which is that the uh, technology assisted review and similar technologies I recall, as you said, oh, the world is coming to an end. We no longer have everybody um, <laughs> looking at documents. And that's true. Document review has changed dramatically over that time period. But the demand for lawyers in other areas has increased, you know, and you see firms continue to grow, firms continue to prosper. And the difference with generative AI in terms of the speed of adoption, to me, it's, as you said, it's the intuitive nature of it. It's like, it's like talking to somebody else which I think created a frenzy around it at the beginning. 
Have you noticed the frenzy to, to have settled out? Are people looking at it a little more soberly now or are they, are they still freaked out about it or? Well, it's funny because uh, um, some tech journalists and I, we, we, we talk every week about you know, developments and whatnot in uh, just, just in the legal industry and whatnot. Bob Ambrosi, who's like probably the most well-known legal technologist out there, he started this roundtable for us during the, during the pandemic and we you know, log in every week and we talk about these issues. And one of the things that we talk about a lot is this idea of there is kind of an arm race now as far as generative AI goes with companies, vendors, especially like in the legal research field. We're seeing a lot of that as far as We'll get a press release from a company and be like, hey, tune in for this really big announcement. And we'll be like, okay, we'll tune in for the big announcement. And they'll be like, well, we're we're in the process of integrating generative AI into our into our yeah. products. It's like, well, so have you done it or not? <laughs> uh, the answer is usually no. Yeah, but but but, but we're working on it. We're, we're, we're going to get there. Yeah. But then like enough, enough companies are doing it that we were like, okay, well, I guess – they don't want to be, I mean, nobody wants to be seen as like a tech, as like a laggard, you know, they don't want to be seen as like someone who's either, you know, not on the train or, you know, not understanding what this technology is or someone who is just kind of going against the grain. You know, they all wanted to kind of look like, okay, well, this is what we're doing and we're, we have this and we're working on it. And we kind of saw that a little bit with TAR too, you know, for a while everyone was, oh, we have predictive coding, we have predictive coding. And even like when, when AI first started becoming like a buzzword or like something that people were, were, were talking a lot about, a lot, of, a lot of vendors would be like, oh, well, we have AI capabilities, we have AI capabilities, even though not really saying what it is. I mean, AI could be all kinds of things. Right. It's a marketing definition, not a, not a technical definition anymore. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so seeing that, seeing that kind of arms race has been interesting because, you know, obviously it shows that these companies are taking it seriously. And they kind of feel like they have to at least get it out there that they're not only taking it seriously, but taking actual steps to integrate it into their existing technology and infrastructure at risk of looking like, you know, they're going to be missing the bus. And that's been interesting as well, because, yeah, I mean, <laughs> in the past, we were like, well, yeah, if you get an, if you get a press release saying, oh, well, we're doing this, we'd be like, well, who cares? Um, so so, right. so, so, that's, so that's been interesting to watch. And, and, and obviously, you know, that's not the end all be all. But if, if real giants like, you know, LexisNexis, Westlaw, Bloomberg and these companies are, are whatnot, if, they, if they're tripping over themselves to kind of let the market know, hey, we're using this technology, we're, we intend on doing this and this with it, then, you know, I, I think it's something that's probably worth keeping an eye on. Yeah. I know we're running a little bit over time, but if you'll indulge me, one last question. What storylines are you looking for in 2024? I know that I know in the industry, something always comes up that no one expects. Yeah. <laughs> That's one of the interesting things about reporting on it, I suspect. But I'm sure you've got your eyes on a few things. What what, what are you looking for this year? So, yeah, I mean, I mean, obviously there's a generative, I mean, generative AI is, just, is, is probably the most obvious answer, just whether or not the technology will continue to evolve. Even in the short amount of time it's been out, it's improved by by leaps and bounds. I mean, I think when it first came out, they had to take the bar exam and I think it got like, uh, I think it barely passed or something. I, I could be, I could be missed it, but that, but that, yeah. No, I think you're right in the, and uh, the new GPT. Like ACE did, I got, think. Like yeah. ACE did like 92% yeah. or something like yeah. that. Yeah, which, you know, I mean, I, 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 I couldn't have gotten 92% with it, even if I cheated. So, um, <laughs> well, it raises, it raises interesting questions about what the law, what the bar exam is is intended for and whether it's effective as a tool to test qualifications. Yeah. Well, and actually that, that, that segues um, into to the other thing that we're watching. Um, Cause the other, the other thing that, you know, is sort of uh, in my purview at the, at the ABA journal is uh, um, one of my reporters uh, focuses on legal ed 
And it'll be interesting to kind of see sort of how that shakes out because, you know, you have some states that are moving away from the bar exam. You have some states that are moving away from the strict licensing standard and, and coming up with new ways to license people either in-state or out-of-state. I mean, and there's always talk about reforming the bar exam, right? That, 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 that's that been going on since, since... Since I took it 40 years ago. Yeah. But it seems like there's actually is some momentum toward it now. You have some states that are actually committing to this new exam, uh, this next-gen exam that's coming out. And going even further, like looking at law schools, you know, you have, some, you have a lot of them that are like moving away from the LSAT, uh, moving away from standardized tests. And it'll, it'll be interesting to kind of see sort of like what that looks like going forward because, and I'm sure that's the case for you. I mean, for me, when I was in law school, when I was applying to law school, testing was everything. If you didn't get a good score in the LSAT, it didn't matter how good your grades were. You weren't getting into a top law school. And if you were in law school, it didn't matter how hard you, how, how hard you studied. didn't matter you know, how many times you came to class prepared. didn't matter how many times you stood up to the Socratic method and, 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 and did a good job. If you didn't perform on the final, then you weren't getting a good grade and you weren't going to make law review and you weren't going to probably weren't going to get to a top firm. And then with a bar exam, it doesn't matter how hard you study. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if it even is going to help you later on as a lawyer. I mean, I don't know about you, but for me, I forgot like 90% of the stuff that I studied that made it my pencil hit the table. So yeah. <laughs> I think I hit 95%, but okay. <laughs> Take your yeah. point. But yeah, so it'll be interesting to kind of see sort of like whether that does kind of create, I don't want to say better lawyers, but like more, you know, more and more nimble lawyers, more, you know, lawyers that are capable of maybe that, that are maybe more practice ready coming out of law school. Like if they're emphasizing more practical skills, if it does diversify things, because obviously testing does kind of have a cultural component to it. I mean, people that can afford to, um, you know, take the expensive classes and, and whatnot, they do have an advantage in these things. And so it'll be interesting to kind of see how that how that, how that is going forward. And just the idea of testing not being the end all be all for, for lawyers now, that's a huge sea change from, you know, from when you and I were in law school. Yeah, absolutely. I know we need to wrap it up, but I think I'll be interested to watch your reporting on this topic because I think one of the most interesting of the many interesting dynamics around generative AI, one of the most interesting to me is what it means for the evaluation of, the development of, the formation of, and the training of people becoming lawyers because it it requires you to think of what does it mean to be a lawyer? How do I get people there in a world where the work is done differently, theoretically? Yeah. It's going to be a fascinating evolution. Yeah. And, and especially, I mean, I think it's, it also kind of, it, it kind of makes you wonder, right? Because if like so many tasks can be done by, by a machine or by, by algorithm or by uh, just by typing prompts into a, in, into a computer or whatnot, then it's just like, well, at the end of the day, you know, that creates... I mean, I mean, and people are like, oh, well, that cheapens the profession or that, you know, takes jobs away from lawyers. Like, well, maybe, but it also creates opportunities for them, right? Because not everyone's going to know how to use ChatGPT properly. Not everyone's going to know how to train algorithms or properly. Not everyone's going to know how to properly phrase search terms and, and whatnot and, and really kind of, you know, harness the technology to kind of give themselves an advantage over other people. And so for people who kind of look at it and understand it and you know, understand how it works and how it can be used properly and, and in a way that can really help them practice law or craft legal arguments or issue spot or that kind of stuff. I think they're going to have a huge advantage. I think that's right. And uh, there's a whole separate issue. I won't even get into it. We focus on AMLA 200 here, but there's a, there's a much broader discussion to be had in terms of the role of technology in closing the access to justice gap. Oh, yeah. That I'm, I'm sure you guys will be reporting on as well. Yeah, that's a. I mean, that, that's a big part of what we of what we look at as well. I mean, just you know, it's just, it's just one of those things where it's like, you know, if so many people are going to court without without representation or without the ability to afford any lawyer, then if there's technology that can help them navigate that process, 
then it can it can only help. And ultimately, it'll be interesting to kind of see how that unfolds because obviously there there are passionate arguments on both sides, and we we cover this a lot of the ABA. We see this a lot of the ABA. I mean, we've we've struggled with it as as an organization, sort of like how to deal with this idea of people and how how to how to deal with the access to justice gap. And you know, some people think, oh yeah, this could this could change everything. And some people are just like, oh, it's more of the same. So it'll it'll be interesting to kind of see how that how that shakes out. Yeah. Uh, truth lies probably somewhere in between. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, Victor, thank you so much for spending time with us today. I really enjoyed it. No, thank you very much. I, I appreciate it. I really enjoyed this talk. And we didn't talk about football. so <laughs> We didn't talk about football, but given you're a Man U fan and I come from an Arsenal household, we probably wouldn't have found much common ground. <laughs> well, I, other than the fact that this last month has not been good to either of us. <laughs> no, it is not. We don't, we don't speak of the last month in my household. <laughs> Victor, thank you so much. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Be sure to visit thepioneerpodcast.com for show notes and more episodes. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform.